This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Well, good morning, everybody, and welcome to Radiotherapy, Triple R's Sunday morning program, bringing you all things medical, psychological, and inspirational while you have a well-deserved sleep-in and a nice cup of tea. I'm your host, Dr. Anabolics, and with me today are my esteemed colleagues, Dr. SK and Dr. McZiff. And also in the studio, we have two wonderful guests, Nick Pierce from The Homey Shop and Koki Saley from Beekeeper Parade. I'm going to be asking them all about the social enterprise aspect of their organisations, giving disadvantaged young people work, skills and hope. Now, the very dashing Dr SK is going to talk about PTSD today and, in particular, how it's portrayed in the movies. He's been watching the film Rambo with Sylvester Stallone, which apparently has something to say on the subject. Let's hope it wasn't relying on good acting for saying it. And celebrating the comedy festival being in town, the wonderful McZiff is going to tell us all about using humour in medicine. This has been a lifelong passion for McZiff. I don't know whether you know about this, SK, but it's been a lifelong passion for McZiff. Uh, he, <laughs> starting when he was just a young intern working at Glasgow Hospital Emergency <laughs> Department, uh, where he was part of the now-famous study that looked at whether compound leg fractures healed faster when the patients would listen to knock-knock jokes. <laughs> of course, that's all they had in those days. They had to do something. But those early trials proved inconclusive, of course, but his belief in the healing power of humour persisted, and later, whilst assisting with the birth of his own first child, he pioneered the use of the then-groundbreaking Bordy Limerick to assist Mrs McZiff through the final <laughs> stage of labour. <laughs> Disappointingly, this experiment had to end prematurely when he realised, as he later wrote in his autobiography, women have no sense of humour. <laughs> Today, he's going to bring us up to date with his experience of being funny in psychiatry over the last two decades. And as it turns out, he'll be starting with our oldest of joke setups. Three psychiatrists walk into a radio station. We might just start with a couple of... Uh, uh, program uh, cuts and then come back because we've got some wonderful p- people in the, in the studio to meet, two guys who fit into the category of good men. We've been talking about good men over the last two years and these two guys certainly fit into that category and they've got some wonderful things to tell us about the Homie Shop and uh, the Beekeeper Parade, which we'll find out about. First of all, Nick Pierce from the Homie Shop. How are you, Nick? I'm good, thanks, Shelley. Thanks for having me today. Really excited to be here. Uh, so are we. And also, Koki Saley from Beekeeper Parade. How yes. are you, Koki? I'm good. Thank you for inviting me and uh, uh, I'm glad that you included me in the good men oh, uh, category. This is without a doubt. So <laughs> let, let's start by telling me, just go perhaps one at a time and tell us a little bit about, first of all, the homey shop and the enterprise around that, Nick. What, what's, how's it all come to be? Yeah, no worries. So, so homey, yeah, I guess it falls under the category of a social enterprise and um, homey provides brand new clothing, training and employment opportunities to advantage young people. Uh, so we focus specifically on people that have been affected by homelessness. And how long have you been going now? It's been um, about 10 months, I think, of operation, and it, it feels like a lifetime, but uh, it's been, a, it's been a, such a good learning uh, curve, that, that those 10 months of trade, and um, oh, just, just really, really fascinating, and I guess what we've been able to achieve is, is actually really awesome as well. When, we, when, you, when you sit back and actually think about it um, and get the, the chance to reflect on it, you go, wow, we've done a fair bit, actually, in that small amount of time. Well, we did actually have one of your um, confreres last year, uh, Robbie Gillies, who was here when the initiative got started. That's right. And... Um, he went on to uh, get a bit of uh, a 
uh, recognition in the Young Australia Victorian Australia Young Australia of the Year, didn't he? He did, yeah, yeah. We're we're very proud of Robbie. He's uh, is an amazing young guy and just just does so much. He's he's currently um, manning a, a barbecue at Bunnings in Box Hill right now with one of the other um, team members. So <laughs> Will they be so listening? Jack of all trades. I don't know. Actually, I hope they're playing the radio. But um, yeah, a bit of a jack of all trades. So really, really uh, well deserved by Robbie. He's a, he's a fantastic guy. And in that time, you've set up the shop. Yep. And And now, how does it work? How does the actual um, the shop work in terms of people coming to buy things? Yeah, cool, cool. So yeah, it operates like any other clothing store. So um, we 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 sort of specifically focus on streetwear clothing, um, trying to engage young people um, and show them that so you can make you know giving easy and caring cool. So the way it works is when you when you purchase something, um, all net proceeds go towards those three things. So providing the uh, the brand new clothing, which is facilitated through a VRP day. Um, so we invite thirty disadvantaged young people that are engaged in a homelessness service to come in once a month, and they receive five items of brand new free clothing to choose at their own discretion: um, haircuts, makeup, food, coffee, just a real pick me up sort of type experience. And uh, we had a fantastic one. Um, most recently last last month and um, we had 30 young women and, and a fantastic um, speaker from the Western Bulldogs um, women's team um, Astro O'Connor it was just absolutely brilliant so um, so that that, that, that that day is really about I guess um, you know it's a difficult period for these people that are experiencing homelessness in their lives and, and we hope through those days that uh, I guess they can reflect one you know um, down the track and say you know it was a pretty pretty rough time but um, I actually had a really good day at homey so um, that's sort of the, the goal of that but focusing now more so on our, on our training um, program and, and employing just vintage young people and the results have just been awesome in terms of um, I guess what we've been able to observe the, the, how far the people that have worked have, have grown. Well I, of course I've been um, following Homie closely because I've been doing some work with you guys and um, Very I'm, appreciated. <laughs> that's good and I've been noticing when I've come into the shop that some of the people who you used to be um, serv- serving are now working with you and for you behind the counter. Absolutely I think that's our proudest achievement to date is that yeah with some, some, some previous clients that have come in um, through through VIP services are now actually servicing those on the VIPs and just the rapport they've built up with those people and I guess just the um, how much they've developed you know professionally and personally um, what it's been able to do for these people um, I know um, one person in particular just um, you know she's had a really rough trot um, growing up and she's just come leaps and bounds um, I think yesterday was a say on Friday was the first ever shift um, solo and um, couldn't couldn't trust anyone more to do, to do that job but um what what it's been able to do for for her she's um just been she's the feedback's been you know to be able to just you know talk to people again and to be able to you know feel welcomed and you know come to a place where where I feel belong you know belonged and, and whatnot so um yeah we're 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 really wrapped with um with how that's going but obviously small steps. Yeah, and you're in Melbourne Central, we should say, too. We are, yes, yep. with, with Koki. <laughs> well, so, Koki, tell us about Beekeeper Parade. Is it a similar kind of setup or a bit different? Uh, a little bit different, uh, but similar. Um, I don't like calling us a social enterprise. Growing up with so many labels uh, my entire life, people call us social enterprise, but I think we are much more just a social business. Yep. Um, it's the kind of business that I think every single business should operate, which is okay. just taking care of each other and, and the world, um, but they don't. Yeah. So um, they should be called bad businesses or something. I don't know. Okay. We, we're just a business. Yep. Um, so Beekip Parade was a little project uh, between me and my little sister. Uh, we looked out into the world and we saw profitable businesses and we thought, why can't we be one of them? Mm-hmm. Except we use our profits to do some good in the world. And uh, I was fascinated with bees as a boy. It's done many times. Mm-hmm. And uh, the f- initial name for our project was Boy and Bee, not Beekeeper. Mm-hmm. And it was about a young boy who wanted to change the world but couldn't until he worked with his best friend, the bee, which was 
Sophia, my little sister, and it was about teamwork and friendship and doing things together and um, taking care of each other. She was diagnosed with uh, cancer four years ago and she fought very bravely for a year and a half and uh, she left this world um, in my arms. Mm. Um, she also left me her, her car in her will and she said to use the money to create that business boy and be to inspire change in the world. And um, I, I, I was, I was going to do it, but I couldn't um, keep the name because I'd aged a lot. And yeah. so I... Um, I thought about uh, our relationship and how I became her carer in the last few months of her life, and I was a keeper. Yeah. And since she was the B in the original name, and I was now a keeper, um, I changed them to beekeeper. So beekeeper is uh, about following your dreams and, f- and never letting go of your dreams and uh, fighting for a better world. And what sort of things? You're also in Melbourne Centre. What sort of things does your shop sell? Your business do? How does it work? Yeah, we uh, we started off with stationery. And uh, I've, I was born in Cambodia, and a lot of our good work is done in Cambodia. Uh, but I realised paper mills don't exist in Cambodia. But textiles do. Lots of the f- first world's fashion waste ends <coughs> up in Cambodia's landfill. Mm. And so I thought about um, how can I turn uh, waste, fashion waste, into something that uh, we can use in a practical, still high quality um, and fairly priced. And um, I thought backpacks because it still fitted in with my commitment to education. Oh, okay. And so uh, we sell backpacks right. that's been um, made from shirts that other people have thrown away from all over the world and also fabrics, whether donated or uh, end of roll fabrics. So factories yeah. quite often will get big orders from big companies. The new season rolls in, there's always five or ten metres left yeah. And it's easier just to get rid of it rather than do something with it. Oh. And so I, um, I get that and That's turn into fun. stuff. I love it when people find things. Yeah. It's, you know, often in psychiatry we talk about using people's strengths to work with rather than <coughs> focusing on di- the disability side of things. Yeah. And that's kind of a, a, a practical material, other world example. You know, in yeah. other words, you, you saw what was there, you saw what was otherwise yeah. going to be wasted, and you saw this could actually be something productive and useful, yeah. and you've turned it into a strength. Now, how does it flow back into the education side of things? How does that all work? Yeah, so um, previous to this project, um, I've had the privilege of building five schools um, and uh, I realise I can't fundraise forever. It's very, very hard and emotionally taxing. Mm. Um, so I, uh, I thought this business could fund some of the programs uh, about making the existing schools as good as they can be. These are in Phnom Penh? In the, the uh, Simriat province, Kampong oh, yeah. Tom province, and the last one is Kep, mm. which is along the coast. Uh-huh. And um, these schools fund uh, the English program in the schools. So the schools are owned by the government yeah. and they're run by the community, but um, we add and enrich the uh, curriculum based on the... Um, what the children and the teachers and the parents want. And so you're, when people come into your shop and yeah. buy one of the backpacks, which you've got one here, by the way, I they're do. spectacular. <laughs> I have to say, they're absolutely gorgeous. I've been in your shop and I've seen they're just beautiful. Thank you. So the money then goes into... Yep, we're being shown one from the... Fantastic. <laughs> 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 um, uh, the money goes then back to over to Cambodia and then all the fabric goes over to Cambodia. They, people are there employed to make... So there's an employment aspect directly yes, there. Yeah. They come back here, gets sold here, yep. and then the money goes back to the education, the schooling for that you're building. Is that yes, right? Yes, yes. We sell all over the world, though, as ah, well. Yeah, we're online. Okay. Uh, 80% of our uh, sales is actually in Melbourne, and uh, our online orders, quite interestingly, the postcode we post to is Northcote, Thornbury, Coburg, Brunswick, 
area as I mean. Really? Yeah, yeah. It's, okay. It's very interesting. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, after today, we're going to spread that right okay. around we're Greater Melbourne. Get to the other yeah. <laughs> now, you guys both have websites that people can learn more about. What's um? How do they find you? How do they find us? Uh, well, Facebook uh, is how we all, we started up initially. But yeah, we do have websites now. We have an online store, which is www.homiestreetstore.com.au, and similar to Koki, we sell um, you know some of our range um, there. So we have t-shirts, long sleeves, uh, beanies caps all that sort of type jazz um, there's something for everyone there and um and also we have our own on um, our just our website which is um www.homelessofmelbourne.org which which will tell you a bit about our organization and what we do and what, we, what we're trying to do because you do more than just the homey store don't you now you do you've got the other charity tap there's a few things happening yeah, yeah. um there's a, there's a few initiatives uh, going on the guys they never stop so um i think robbie and um, marcus are sort of the pioneers of, of charity tap that that's a really really other cool sort of side um aspect which operates very similar to a, a fantastic grant funding scheme um called street smart australia which is not for profit um sort of inspired by that turning bars um or pubs um a tap of theirs into um, a charity giver. So the way it works is we have these um, these taps which we screw on. Um, we have about, I think, 10 uh, bars um, that just signed up at the moment and um, there's about five more which are jumping on board and all proceeds there which are generated um, from increasing the price of the um, of the beer uh, at the customer's expense um, goes towards grassroots um, community level um, charities. So we, we give a grant out um, per month to a different charity and they're becoming more and more significant which is which is fantastic. So the most important thing there though I think is that these are these are grassroots organisations. Um, it's really transparent. And people are seeing the impact of their dollar, so it's really easy to do. I think um, you know, playing on that notion of conscious consumerism, just just finding things that people are already doing and making them better, and being able to serve people um, by by doing those. I think that's really important. Now, there's a move afoot. Both of you guys look like you might be moving shop or moving moving place of business. What's what's happening there now? There's a lot, uh, lot of uns- yeah. uncertainty. Um, you know, running a running a not for profit um, and a social enterprise or a, or a business, as Koki says, um, regardless of whether it's that social aspect. So. Um, we're always sort of on the move and um, you know shuffling around and well I think we've got you know sort of sort of quite quite big aspirations to, to collaborate going forward. There's there's a lot of synergy. It's funny how Koki and myself met. We were introduced obviously through through Melbourne Central, but uh, funnily enough, Marcus and myself prior to, to prior to getting this off the ground when Robbie jumped on board and whatnot actually went to Cambodia. That's how we met each other. And our favourite place where we visited was Kep, which is where Koki's from and has <laughs> has a school set up and has a uh, property there now. So um, uh, I'm yes. hoping to retire there. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but um, so it's just so it's such a small world, um, yeah. and it was just awesome to, to find someone. Um, and and Koki's been a real inspiration in terms of how comprehensive his business is, and and just how metacognitive he is with his thinking. Um, you know, behind it all, it's just um, it's really inspiring because that process from start to finish, you know exactly where where that dollar is being spent and where it's going, the impact that's being made. So for us, yeah. I guess we're trying to achieve that ourselves as well, so that a customer knows from start to finish exactly what their what their impact has been. And am I right in thinking there's a crowdsourcing thing happening to get you a new place? I think so, yeah. Going forward, we, we, we definitely want to... Um, and obviously, it's... Um yeah, once again, uncertainty, and and you know we're, we're both running businesses, and the, the biggest thing a business needs to operate is, is capital. So um, in the in, in the pipeworks, trying to generate some more uh, income today, starting with the sausage sizzle. So uh, <laughs> first point of call is get down to Bunnings and get yourself a snag with a bit of onion and maybe a soft drink as well. But um, absolutely, going forward, I think that's um, for us to really consolidate what we're doing and and to have a presence, you know, in in, in the community and, and where we're so lucky to be in, in Melbourne Central and just to be able to secure the longevity of that. Obviously, you know, um, once and 
the day, it is a business. So um, that's how that's how the thought process needs to be. So people can find details about that on your Facebook page when it comes up, I guess. Absolutely, they can. Yeah. So you'll see something soon. Nick, can I ask you what um, personally have you found the most um, growing aspect of this for you? Because I know you've come in contact with a lot of people who've been uh, coming to your store, who've been on the street, yep. and people who you probably haven't <coughs> mixed with before in your life as much. And yeah. What What's been the biggest uh, learning? Oh, it's, for it's, you and the guys. Do you reckon? It's, it's funny. I think um, for ourselves, I know. I know Robbie and my, uh, Robbie and myself and, and Ed, some of the team members, you know, very privileged growing up. I guess went to a private boys' school and um, you know really had the had everything at our disposal. But um, interesting period of my life um, from when I was eighteen to sort of where I'm now, twenty two. Um, just in terms of personally, um, got diagnosed with OCD and um, that was a big thing for me in terms of previously being indifferent to, to the mental health um, you know sector and, and really thought that when someone said they had depression that they were just you know sad and whatnot. And um, and, and then personally there was this big driving factor I guess to try and do whatever I could to, to try and um, you know help people that might be in a similar situation to myself so that's always been a big driving factor for me is being you know just, just serving people and I think um, you know when we're running businesses there was a, there was a at school a takeaway I had someone said um, that, that leadership is a service not a privilege and I've really taken that on board in terms of you know I think that there's no better feeling than, than, than helping other people so to be able to do that um, you know and, and, and fuel a passion and, and work with my mates um, that, that's it's just been fantastic but seeing people that have had similar experiences to myself and I guess I'd say you know far uh, more difficult circumstances than myself um, obviously because I couldn't imagine um, being at my worst with my OCD and then being on the streets um, you know how what that would be like without my medication and whatnot but um, I guess um, you know really able to empathize with people and go wow like um, you know I'm, I'm really fortunate so I guess there's a big factor is that I want to do whatever I can now to, mm. to be able to look after as many people as possible because I know how hard it can be and I had a lot of support mechanisms but people that are experiencing disadvantage and, mm. and experiencing homelessness you know even more so than myself so mm. I think that's at the end of the day is the thing that keeps me going the most is that you know I know how hard it can be so you know I don't, I w- you wouldn't wish it upon your worst enemy yeah that's fantastic and Koki it sounds like you had uh, you went through a lot of uh, grief yourself and had personal experiences that must have shaped your journey up to this point as well I guess enormously obviously uh, very enormously uh, I think uh your true courage is something I talk about a lot in the talks I give out to schools yeah. and um, it happens every single day around us but the, uh, the first time I recognised it was in the eyes of my little sister a few days before she left the world yeah. and uh, we locked eyes across the hospital bed and we both knew she knew she was about to leave and that's when I first recognised true courage so um, it's taken me a very long time to um, to understand that I'm not meant to get over grief for my sister is just a big part of me now mm-hmm. and um the biggest lesson i've learned from from that and what drives me uh now is that uh, if my little sister could face death with such courage and such peace and calmness mm-hmm. there's not a thing in the world that i need to fear and i actually don't so, so being in melbourne central every day trying to uh sell bags which I really feel I don't. I actually just tell people you've walked past my dreams. Mm. Um, would you like to talk about your dreams and things like that? But um, well, yeah, it's a very no welcoming fear. space. I've, I've been in there. It's a very <laughs> welcoming space. Mm. You make people very happy and welcoming when they come in. You talk to them. Mm. It's a fantastic place to be. It's um, it's a, it, it's interesting the way you both describe that because I, I guess uh, SK and Vixiv, I probably would agree with me. I, uh, when talking with patients over my career, <clears> if I had a dollar for every person who said to me exactly the words that you've both said, you know, I wouldn't 
put my worst enemy through what I've been through, but my God, it's made me a better person than I used to be. <laughs> I think mm-hmm. that's a, such a common, common statement for people. It just, it, you know, all these things mm-hmm. shape us, don't they? And, shape, and it obviously has done, and you've, you've translated what you've been through, both of you, into such incredibly practical and fabulous creations. It's, it's wonderful. So... Uh, just really great to meet you and thank you so much for coming in and um, is there anything else that we need to know that we, we can support you anything else people would, if people listening want to support you what's the best thing they could do this morning when they finish their cup of tea and oh, I guess it would be to just come and say hello you know at our, at our respective shop or for mine to come and come and check out our space you know it, and as Koki said it's really more than just a shop like that's it's, that's at the, at the bare minimum what it is it's, it's, mm. it really is you know a, a warm and welcoming place well both mm. of them are um, so I think that's the biggest thing you need to come and sort of experience it yourself and feel it you know and, and talk to the people behind it because um you just get such a great sense of you know as you say like it's that it, we're, we're very small in the scheme of things but i think that i mean koki's making an amazing difference and i, and I think that you know we're, we're making some inroads as well so um it's amazing what people can do when they put their heads together and, and knuckle down and believe in something so um absolutely and you also want people who've got denim shirts in their closet don't you what's uh, now what's that about if they've got nice blue denim shirts too small they're busting out in the middle what do they do with koki okay they need to come to melbourne central yep. they need to go to the guest services desk on level one and they need to donate those yes. denim clothes brilliant uh they will end up with myself and i'm going to do something incredible with them i'm going to transform their waste into something beautiful which will be sold at homie's shop ah. and uh and you guys will also get uh an office card from melbourne central right. which will allow you to upgrade on your denim new denim so ah. you got a little, bonus, cool that? A little bonus card yeah. you can take away and shop in melbourne central yes <laughs> I think the Synergy Angel just went. <laughs> and, uh, one more thing, if I can say. Uh, the one thing people can do to help. I've been a bit naughty uh, in the last month and I've been asking people to write to Melbourne Central and say to them that uh, they need more social enterprises and social businesses in the centre. And people have been and Melbourne Central has been listening. Oh. So if they can do that, just... Google Melbourne Central, contact us. Mm. Write in that you believe that, particularly if you've met both of us. Mm. Um, or heard you on Triple R. Or heard us on Triple R right. to, to do that because I think it's turning. I yeah. think we can uh, persuade them as a community mm. to actually give us a proper permanent space yep. that will do much bigger impact if we're given that space. And that costs nothing. It yeah, costs Co- nothing. Yeah. Koki, you're just after denim shirts. I'm thinking like the 80s or a long time oh, ago. Would, yes. you, would you take jeans or kilts in denim? Yes, perhaps? anything. Actually, jeans, kilts. Oh, yes. Right. You have a kilt? Are you, are you actually leaving Mick me... Mick has a kilt. Oh, I've right. seen it. <laughs> <laughs> people are eating their breakfast. Can we leave that image, you know? <laughs> Bring it along to the shop and we'll, we'll believe it after we see it, Mick <laughs> Uh, look, I've got vintage tartan kilts, <laughs> and uh, look, I'm very impressed. I'm, I'm, I admire the work that these young men have done, but uh, nobody gets their hands on my kilt. <laughs> <laughs> or under it. <laughs> Three. Triple. SK, you were going to tell us a little bit about um, uh, Rambo. You've been reading Rambo. The original uh, film in the quadrilogy First Blood uh, was actually based on a novel uh, which was written in 1972 and really it was a a novel that was about post-traumatic stress disorder and I think the first uh, film in the series uh, really expresses that well. Uh, First Blood was written in 1972 so it was very much a a uh, post-Vietnam War film 
and uh, the the guy who wrote it, David Morell, was uh, inspired to write a book about a dedicated war hero who was struggling to assimilate back into the real world uh, following his uh, discharge from military service. And uh, what inspired him to create the character of John Rambo is it's, the character is actually based on a real-life World War II American war hero, uh, a fellow called Audie Murphy, who was the single most decorated U.S. Uh, soldier in history. Uh, he won virtually every possible U.S. military decoration for valour and was also uh, decorated by the French and Belgian governments, I think. Uh, and Murphy himself was, was plagued following his own military service with symptoms which we would now recognise in, in more modern times as being uh, characteristic of post-traumatic stress disorder. You know, you'll recall that back in the earlier parts of the 20th century it was re referred to as shell shock and mm. combat fatigue and by a, a variety of other names. But uh, Audie Murphy post-discharge was plagued with uh, insomnia, uh, bouts of depression. Uh, he slept with a loaded pillow, a uh, loaded pistol, sorry. <laughs> well, I suppose it's a loaded pillow in a sense. A loaded pistol under his pillow. And he had a, a post-discharge uh, medical examination in 1947 and, and that revealed symptoms such as headaches, vomiting and recurrent nightmares about the war. Uh, his own medical records indicate that he uh, virtually became addicted to sleeping pills in order to try and wipe out his post-war flashbacks and uh, intrusive nightmares. And uh, his post-traumatic stress surfaced in various episodes throughout his life, which uh, both his friends and colleagues uh, found quite alarming. Uh, his first wife stated on one occasion that he held her at gunpoint, for example. Uh, and she witnessed her husband's angst over things that uh, he had experienced during the war. Uh, she saw him being guilt-ridden and tearful, for example, when uh, being shown newsreel footage of uh, German children who'd been orphaned during the war. Mm. Interestingly, following World War II, uh, Murphy went on to star as himself mm. in uh, a Hollywood film adaptation of his own autobiography, which was entitled To Helen Back. And he actually went on to have quite a successful film career, appearing in a total of 44 feature films, right. mainly westerns, mm -hmm. uh, following World War II, uh, before he uh, finally died tragically and unexpectedly in a plane crash in, in 1971. Oh, wow. So the exploits of Audie Murphy formed the basis for David Morrell's writing of First Blood. The film rights to this book were actually optioned very early on by Columbia Pictures in the early 1970s. They then passed to uh, Warner Brothers and continued through development hell for a period of 10 years. Uh, it was the single most optioned project in Hollywood between 1972 and 1982. And uh, to the extent to which development hell operated in the, the project of, of First Blood is, is illustrated by the fact that there were more than 26 drafts of the story that were written during that decade of development mm. and literally dozens of actors signed on and subsequently dropped out of the role of John Rambo before the film actually came to screen. And you can imagine with some of these names that I'll go through how quite a different film could have emerged if mm. any of the following actors had actually followed through and signed on. Uh, Steve McQueen was canvassed for the role. Of course, yeah. Uh, Paul Newman. Clint mm. Eastwood, which is an interesting mm. choice mm. because, again, in 1982, when First Blood was released, Eastwood himself uh, starred in a film called Firefox in which he, in that film, portrayed a, a US Air Force pilot who himself was suffering from post-traumatic uh, stress following his experiences uh, in Vietnam. 
Uh, Al Pacino was also uh, mm. approached to do the role. He declined it mm. on the basis that he wanted uh, to be able to rewrite the script to make it more violent which is interesting. Uh, De Niro was also approached because he'd had roles, I guess, in films such as The Deer Hunter of a a similar genre in the early 70s. Nick Nolte, uh, John Travolta, and quite bizarrely, Dustin Hoffman. Can you imagine Dustin Hoffman playing John Rambo? No. I certainly can't. (laughs) A number of other actors were initially uh, approached to play other key roles in the film. There's a character called uh, Colonel Sam Troutman, who was uh, Rambo's commander in Vietnam and his only true friend, really, uh, it it appears from the films. Uh, Lee Marvin was initially offered that role, but uh, turned it down, apparently, because he didn't want to play a colonel. I'm not quite sure what that means. Maybe he wanted to play a major, like he did in The Dirty Dozen, or uh, felt that a colonel was not career progression enough for him. The role was then assigned, the Sam Troutman role, to uh, Kirk Douglas, and Douglas actually made it onto the set for filming and appeared in early publicity for the film and uh, commercial advertisements for it, but he left the production in turn when his demands to rewrite the script were turned down. Uh, Kirk Douglas favoured portraying in the film the ending that was actually written in the book, which which has Rambo dying. Uh, The producer's... Uh, and certainly Stallone and the film's director wanted to leave the film more open and because of creative differences, uh, therefore, Kirk Douglas left and uh, the, the actor Richard Crenner, who was ultimately uh, pulled into uh, to, to do this role, did so with uh, one day of notice. He was, mm-hmm. was called, uh, literally, and then the next day he was on the set to, uh, to film it and uh, Richard Crenner's over-the-top hammy <laughs> acting mm. performance, you know, for me is one of the highlight of this series of films. He, he overacts to uh, compensate, I think, for Stallone's habitual uh, underacting. Stallone himself was offered the part in First Blood because of his role in the popular Rocky franchise. Stallone initially turned it down because of his fears that the, the role had been offered to so many actors already and the film had taken so long in development hell that he in fact feared uh, it would never get made. But uh, he later committed to the role when he was offered the opportunity again to rewrite the script. Uh, The three and a half million dollars that he was paid to portray the character might have helped somewhat. Uh, But Stallone's input made Rambo a more sympathetic character in the film than perhaps the the crazed madman that uh, he was portrayed as in uh, David Morrell's uh, original novel. Despite development hell, the the original first cut of the film, the first draft that was produced and and shown to studio executives, uh, ran to three and a half hours long. And according to Stallone, uh, in an interview that he gave, it was so bad that it made both him and his agent sick, uh, to the extent that Stallone wanted to buy the movie and destroy it, thinking that it was a career killer. It was eventually released after heavy re-editing and cut down to about 93 minutes, and this was the the version that was uh, ultimately released in Mm theatres. So an interesting backstory, which does (coughs) have its roots in a novel that was rooted in the uh, traumatic experiences of the protagonist. So what is uh, post-traumatic stress disorder as we understand it nowadays and and how does it affect those who suffer it? I mean, the first criteria for someone who develops post-traumatic stress is that they need to have been exposed to a major life stressor which has the threat of uh, 
disturbing personal integrity or, or resulting in death or serious injury. That's the definition of the stressor, is it? It's got to be that, of that level? It does have to be at that level, but, you know, certainly there's, there's clear cases where people have developed post-traumatic stress syndrome in after exposure to lower-level stresses. For example, there's been cases where people have developed PTSD following the viewing of a film. You know, if you're unprepared for graphic uh, content within a film, for example, that might itself qualify as a sufficiently horrific stressor for a vulnerable personality to develop uh, post-traumatic symptoms. Like Sex in the City 2? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, perhaps ironically, like uh, Rambo and some of the first blood films, uh, the, the Rambo films uh, yeah. themselves, you know, they're quite graphically yeah. violent, yeah. particularly the, the later iterations. I think mm. Stallone's body count across the four films hit 220 mm-hmm. uh, but you know perhaps uh, you know even more modern cinematic releases like the the torture porn genre yeah. such as Hostel mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Saw you know I think in a vulnerable personality they may, may well be enough mm-hmm. to, to mm-hmm. generate PTSD but it has to be a, a severe stressor that is perceived at least yeah. and it's the perception that's important by the uh, the person who's subjected to it as horrific or uh, potentially life-threatening there's a number of symptoms that people then go on to experience following exposure to a stressor. Uh, these can be categorised in a number of uh, broad groups. Uh, there's what's called intrusion symptoms, avoidance symptoms and uh, negative alterations in both cognition or thinking and mood. Uh, perhaps the best known of the intrusive PTSD symptoms is PTSD flashbacks where people vividly re-experience in almost a cinematic way uh, the traumatic events that, uh, that caused them to develop the syndrome in the first place. They can be either experienced during waking life, during which time people dissociate, you know, shut off a part of conscious experience, uh, what they're actually doing at the time and literally find themselves reliving a traumatic stressor, or they can be re-experienced through intrusive nightmares as well, as was the case with uh, Audie Murphy, which led to his uh, addiction to sleeping tablets. So they're recurrent intrusive memories which provide uh, a vivid reliving of the event. And these uh, reliving episodes can often be produced by certain triggers, which whilst they might be... uh uh, considered benign to people who hadn't been exposed to the stressor carry a, an important emotional overlay in relation to the experiencing of that stressor and you know the classic from Vietnam uh, as, as we heard from you know that song uh, I was only 19 is uh, you know the channel 7 chopper yeah. uh, innocently passing over precipitating a, a flashback of traumatic uh, wartime experiences so did Rambo in the movie have those experiences did he he was he was a Vietnam veteran is that right absolutely and, and uh, you know the plot of the film in First Blood is that uh, you know Rambo's a vagrant. You know he's suffered social drift as a result of his wartime experiences, and he actually articulates later in the film that back in Vietnam he was in charge of million-dollar equipment, but in civilian life he, he can't even hold down a job washing cars, and he's arrested essentially for vagrancy whilst passing through a small town. You know, I just want to go back to the triggers. I, I, you know, there, there's been some brilliant portrayals of PTSD in uh, contemporary cinema and, uh, and television, but uh, I, I think the one that hit me bet most was uh, on West Wing. Uh, Josh Lyman, um, when he was uh, he was shot. Um, in a, an assassination attempt uh, on the, the, the uh, Jed Bartlett's daughter. And, 
he had, uh, which is what, and, and what he developed was delayed onset PTSD, which is what we tend to see clinically, I think, more. Um, uh, that acute PTSD is not necessarily what people present with. It's uh, cumulative trauma or, or delayed onset. And his trigger, the ultimate trigger, was when he was in a concert listening to Yo-Yo Ma, uh, the famed musician, playing uh, in a private um, uh, a, a private performance for the president. And the sound of, uh, of Yo-Yo Ma playing uh, his instrument uh, brought to mind the sound of the, of the breaking glass that, uh, from a shot that, that rang out at the time of his... Uh, and, and so it can be something that's really quite simple, but triggers an intense reaction in the sufferer. So quite innocuous to the rest Absolutely. of us, but deep yeah. personal meaning to yeah. the person who suffered it. And certainly Rambo's uh, murderous rage, if you like, in First Blood was precipitated by a series of PTSD flashbacks. When he was arrested for vagrancy, uh, he was subject to a degree of police brutality by the, the sheriff who arrested him. Uh, we see a shot when he enters the police station of the police station window and then that shot is uh, juxtaposed to a flashback uh, from when Rambo was imprisoned underground uh, with a, a bamboo uh, curtain separating him from the rest of the world. The shape of the window in the police station resembled this bamboo mesh within which Rambo was imprisoned. Uh, we see he's, he's later placed in a headlock by one of the sheriffs which gives him a flashback to when he was tortured by the, the North Vietnamese soldiers and the sheriffs also produce a, uh, a straight razor and restrain him in order to try and dry shave him for his court appearance and this produces another flashback of when uh, Rambo was cut and tortured with knives by the Vietnamese. So in response to this series of uh, triggers if you like he becomes incredibly violent and you know this is uh, another key symptom of PTSD is that there's alterations in both arousal and reactivity to stimuli in the environment so people become hypervigilant they become on edge and uh, they're, they're apt to react in very over-emotional and over-the-top ways which are quite often violent. Perhaps the third and final uh, cluster of symptoms with which Rambo suffered in First Blood was this sense of alienation and uh, an inability to relate to the rest of society. We see him throughout the film with, uh, you know, unless he's actually engaged in an act of violence or having a PTSD-related breakdown, and there's an extended sequence at the end where he does this, but the rest of the time he's emotionally blunted. There's very little reactivity to his affect, and I'll give Sylvester Stallone the benefit of the doubt uh, to say that that was intentional rather than, uh, you know, just a, an, an artifact of poor acting anabolics. So is it, was it kind of, would you, well, how would you rate the movie as a bit of a on-screen depiction of a psychiatric syndrome reasonably okay look i, I think as, as far as ptsd goes uh it, it's very good uh, I do find an, an irony in that the subject matter itself is likely to precipitate a degree of PTSD in people who watch the film, but particularly the way the film differs from the book. Rambo as a character in First Blood is much more sympathetic as a result of his PTSD experiences. We see him as a victim of it. Mm. In the original Morel book, uh, you know, he was actually portrayed as a madman and it was very hard to sympathise with the protagonist as a result of his experiences. So I think the film does a better, more sympathetic job than the book in that regard. Fascinating. Thank you so much for that. Three, triple, ah. Oh. I was at, uh, I've, I've been to a couple of things at the Comedy Festival and uh, the thing that really strikes me is the, uh, is 
the, the way that some of these genius performers just manage to, uh, in, in a highly prepared fashion, come across as though they're being spontaneous. But uh, um, so, you know, I, I've. Every time this year, every, every time of year, uh, I'm drawn to thinking about uh, comedy uh, and uh, humor in medicine. And uh, um, uh, it's a difficult one because medicine is a serious business. And uh, so the question is, can you laugh with your patients? And, uh, and is there room for humor in medicine? And as with all uh, relationships, the full gamut of human emotion is possible. You know, warmth, compassion, affection, fear, anxiety, envy anger, hatred, it's all there. Um, and uh, in the cauldron of therapeutic relationships, the more intense variety, uh, as is often seen in, psychiatry, in psychiatry, such strong emotions are the norm. And in, in psychotherapy itself, those very same emotions are the vehicle that we use to gain understanding and, and make progress. And not surprisingly, there may be tears, but also at times, joyous laughter. And sometimes when things are at their darkest, there's not much else to do but uh, acknowledge with black humor the, the reality which exists. I do remember, um, and I, I've mentioned this before a few years ago, but uh, um, I, I remember a patient of mine who I was seeing for uh, a few years, um, and uh, her life was fairly troubled, and she had a bleak uh, approach, very pessimistic um, all the sessions were very much the same. Um, she didn't see anything bright at all. Um, and uh, there was a sort of... We, she'd come in and she'd sit there and her brow was very furrowed and uh, she she looked miserable the entire time. And uh, we were trying to get to the bottom of what was going on, the source of her misery, and it was like uh, walking through treacle. And... Uh, uh, it so happened that uh, our weekly session coincided with a session in the adjacent consulting room with another psychiatrist who was seeing someone at the same time every week. And uh, from that adjacent room, uh, whilst we were mired in misery, there were peals of, the, of laughter, just raucous laughter. The entire session seemed to be one full-on comedy show week after week after week and it was there was a sense of trepidation that I had each time I'd walk into the consulting room with my patient as uh, uh, what are we going to hear from the next room I mean you couldn't actually hear the, the, the words because they were so allegedly soundproof the rooms but you could hear the laughter there was no escaping the laughter and this laughter was always there and uh, so I think it must have been after a couple of months my patient, who'd never said a funny thing in the entire time, uh, said, I think I want to go and see that psychiatrist. And interestingly, that was, that, that, that was a breakthrough yes. because it, 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 it was, we were both able to laugh at what she had in fact brought in. Mm. We were able to see that well, 
maybe there's uh, there's there's some scope. We can we can actually we, we've shared this moment. It's a very important moment because it's an acknowledgement that um, what's been going on in here has been pretty terrible, and uh, and it was actually very helpful. So so there's tears and uh, and sometimes there's laughter, but it, it's risky business. Um, uh, the laughter and the laughter can only be with our patients, as was fortunately the case on that occasion, and not ever be able to be perceived by our patients as us laughing at them because that's usually um, uh, a game breaker. And uh, um, looking back at the many powerful moments with patients, I recall um, such moments where insight is uh, is gained. The, um, the, the, the past is linked with the here and now and a deep understanding is made of the patterns which exist in an individual's life. And uh, um, there's frequently an outpouring of emotion at, uh, at that point in time. There may be tears of relief. There may be tears of, uh, of grief with uh, an acknowledgement of, of what's been lost. And sometimes there's just wry laughter. There's uh, a sense of, oh, yeah, well, you know, that's, yeah, SK. Because if uh, I gather there's a difference between being able to respond to attempts at humour made by the patient and judging your response to that and and initiating humor yourself as a therapist and it, it's a fine line uh, under what circumstances would you be prepared to make a joke to a patient rather than respond to something that the patient may have said i'm i, I very rarely if ever introduce the the the, the humor myself um and uh and I mean, this reminds me of another anecdote, and uh, I'm sure that my former patient who who told me this um, wouldn't mind me saying it. Um, uh, this this was uh, a youngish woman who'd been to see me, and uh, um, very really quite a successful therapy in terms of the progress that uh, that had been made. And at the end of 12 months, the final session when we were saying goodbye, which is often a very emotional, uh, a very emotional time. You know, you've worked together, you've 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 uh, achieved the sort of goals that you set out to achieve and she said in the final session she said you know i i have to reveal something to you and uh i said and and what's that and she said well when i was initially referred to you my gp said look i'm gonna refer you to this psychiatrist um um i i, I think you need someone who can actually help brighten you up just in terms of an attitude change and this guy mcziff uh is uh, he's a funny guy and uh, <laughs> and uh, uh <laughs> And uh, and so she said to me, she said, and, and doctor, I have to tell you that having sat with you once a week for the last 12 months, you're the most humorless bastard I've ever come across. <laughs> so so now, now that was, that was for me, that was a badge of honor because it was, uh, I mean, we both laughed yeah. at that moment, but, but it, it's very, you have to be very careful about what you, what you bring in. Maybe it reflects the, uh, different sort of practices. I know you do a lot of in-depth psychotherapy. My work's mainly in cognition. I often have to disclose to people, you know, potentially life-changing diagnoses. And I, I do find occasionally that the use of humour is both useful and appropriate to either help lighten the mood or to develop rapport. I'm certainly careful in the circumstances in which I do it, and you need to make a judgement about the patient who's in front of you. But I think... Uh, you know, coming across as humourless and a blank slate as a psychiatrist, as a as a broad rule, is, is yeah. not necessarily something to be aspired to unless you have that psychotherapeutic type of practice. I, I don't know, Anna Bollocks, whether yeah. you have thoughts? 
Well, I, I, I think you've got to be judged judge very carefully who you're talking to and what circumstances you're in. But I reckon the other aspect too is that it's a strength. Humour is a strength and it's a defence. It's a, def- a very good high-level defensive strategy that we can use to get through things. And sometimes it's worth introducing that as a mechanism to help people say, look, this is one way you can use this. You know, you've been operating in the world of uh, denial or, you know, refusing to accept something. There's another way that you can look at this, which is through perhaps a more sophisticated lens of, of the, there's some humour here, there's something that you can look at that might lighten this. So it can be used a bit of a, as a defensive tool for us, I think. No, I think uh, the, the key thing from a therapist's perspective is to be attuned to those micro moments, mm-hmm. uh, what's happening emotionally for the person you're with, for the patient. And, uh, and that one has to be extremely sensitive uh, about, those, uh, about those moments. Um, because if, if, you're, if, you, if you're actually trying to introduce something that's lighthearted, when uh, when the moment is is very sure. painful for the individual, mm-hmm. then that that's that's a terrible slap in the face. Mm-hmm. So that, that's why I'm very careful. But I'm not the least bit averse to you know. And I think it's very important where it's appropriate for that, that laughter to be there. But you've also got to understand the sociocultural context of the individual. Like now, some cultures laughter is uh, is uh, a defence against shame about losing face, and uh, and one has to be mindful. Uh, uh, of the of the culture of the person, uh, the, the, the the culture that they come from, and you've also you, you mentioned anabolics, um, laughter, uh, humor as, as as a defense. It can also be used quite negatively in a therapeutic context to block painful emotional states, sure. and that's something which you can actually work with. I think to to try to um, break through. You know, we, we're often trying to. To gently break down the defences that uh, that uh, patients are bringing in, that the stuff that's stopping them from getting to underlying anxiety, and uh, and so that has to be that has to be carefully carefully done as well. One of the reasons I used to love working with adolescents so much is that that's a, that's a cultural group that take the piss out of us all the time. It's just wonderful working with, with adolescents because you say you can't laugh at patients, you can't laugh with them. Well, adolescents will laugh at us all the time. Just They'll just nail you beautifully. They'll call you out on all your bullshit and they'll tell you, you know, that's just <laughs> crap and, you know, you, you're old and it, it's just it's just wonderful working with adolescents. They will just laugh. You know, they, they, they've got this wonderful ability to kind of take the piss out in your face and I, I love working with them for that reason and uh and young children as well yeah. um who um who, who don't tend to have an off button and uh they'll they'll often say it as they see it and uh yeah so so i think there's scope and uh i think um uh we, you know we but we have to be we as therapists have to be have to be very careful and uh i mean it, it, and this extends of course to all other types of medical consultation if you're looking at as, as a patient, if you're looking at something through a humorous lens, does it help you cope? Do you think? Does it help? Does it? Oh, it a- I think I think it's, you know, the, the the those people in life who are able to have that uninhibited belly laugh, who can respond with with that the intense freedom and liberty of just letting go, that orgasmic pleasure of laughter. Like a 12-month-old kid, you know, that, that I mean, giggling. It is, there, 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 is, there is nothing that is, that is quite like that. And we know that, the, I mean, there's massive release of endorphins mm-hmm. when you actually do have that outburst, that peal of laughter. And uh, I've, you know, 
I still want to get in with that psychiatrist who was in the consulting room adjacent to me. <laughs> Which is why everyone tonight, no doubt, will go be spending all their money at the comedy festival. You know, twas ever thus. So, mm. look, we'll have to wind up. Thank you so much. Uh, we're going to uh, say goodbye now to see you next week. I want to thank SK, McZiff, Kent on the panel, our wonderful guests, Nick and um, uh, Koki, and uh, stay tuned for Einstein and Gogo, and see you next week. La grosse radio pour des grands enfants. Triple RFM. Big radio for big kids, is that right? All oh, right, okay. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.